Welcome back to the Table Church Podcast, everybody. It's been a while, hasn't it, Megan? A really long time. How long has it been since you and I sat at this table and recorded a podcast? Do you remember? Mm, Probably like two months. And then it was like once in the summer. So since last spring, basically never. Because we were doing the Nerd Zone episodes where we would bring in guests. That was great. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed that a lot. Mm -hmm. Not just because I got a break, but because the content itself and the people that we had were awesome. Mm -hmm. But we're back now. So here we are. Guess what? This is Table Church's today. Literally today is Table Church's three-year birthday. Mm -hmm. We turned three today. Megan, rewind three years today. Um, what, how, take me back to that day <laughs> in your mind when we launched. Um, what was that like? I mean, the first thing I think of is just wondering, uh, standing in the lobby and wondering if anyone would show up. Mm-hmm. That's it's always big the big question. question. Yep. Yeah. Um, and goodness, it feels so much longer than three years ago. Yeah. I, but in a good way. In or at least not in a bad way, but goodness, have things changed? <laughs> yeah, it's been quite a three years. We'll just put it that way. Yes, exactly. So we had all the signs up. We had done months and months of planning. We had done a preview service mm-hmm. a couple weeks before that. Did we do one of those or two? We did one. We did one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember because we did the preview service on the same day that the Downton Abbey movie came out. First one. <laughs> okay. Wait, there's two Downton Abbey movies? I didn't yes. Know, I didn't know that. Yes. I knew there was so, one. Yeah. I wonder which one I'm aware of. The uh, first one or the second one. Did you see the new one? I don't I don't know. I've see I've seen one. I've seen one, but I don't even remember then what it's you saw about. The first one. Okay. Because the new one just came out. Oh, yeah, no. Where I they didn't. go to the south of France. <laughs> no. I haven't seen that. Sunburns. Hugh Bonneville <laughs> gets like did they raccoon have... eyes, like where he's you know, he's been wearing sunglasses. Oh, you know, just some good filming. Downton shenanigans. Yeah. Did but they anyway. have sunscreen? When was that uh, invented? That was invented in World War One or World War Two. World gonna... War Two, I know. They got. I think World War One was more like bug spray, and World War Two was sunscreen. The first right? sunscreen in the world was invented in Australia. That makes sense. Very sunny place yeah. by chemist H.A. Milton Blake in 1932. Okay. Formulating with the UV filter. Oh, I don't need to read of it. Okay. Uh-huh. There you go. So 30s and then it was World War II then because I know I remember reading that they got uh, much more savvy about like applying sunscreen, mm-hmm. um, you know, to pre- prevent burns in the South Pacific. What did we do before? We just wore long sleeves all the time. Well, we didn't live as long in general, so I think. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, people were always wearing suits and mm-hmm. ties and sleeves. Hats. We, yeah. Our hat game. Women wore hats and had parasols. It was much better. We had top hats. Yeah. Parasols. So we just covered ourselves up. Yeah. We, and, we white folk. And. We had to manage. You didn't, if you weren't a working person, you didn't sit outside much mm-hmm. you know so right. yeah that's what we did so there you go anyhow uh launch three years ago <laughs> yep um 
uh, let me think. Yeah, I remember wondering if anyone would come up, would show up, and then just being like over overwhelmed that people actually did. Mm-hmm. That was incredible. It was a very encouraging day. Um, yeah, it was an awesome day. It was an awesome day. We had people like we had a few old friends showed up that mm-hmm. we didn't know would be there. We had a bunch of people show up who we had met. Um, you know, up until that point for la- yep. over the last like three months or so before we launched, which was great. We had new people show up because of like bags of popcorn we put on their doorstep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A lot of that actually. Mm-hmm. The popcorn was effective. That was, I don't feel we did, I, did we do two or three? We did three door to door events. One was Coke, bottles mm-hmm. of Coke. Yeah. That was in June or July. Yeah. And then one was hot chocolate, That's little packs right. of hot chocolate. That was in November. That, that was after we launched. That was after we launched, yeah. Yeah, that was in the fall. And then um, and we and did popcorn the popcorn right was before. just before. I don't recall that the Coke bottles ever, like I don't we think ever we got heard a single of anybody. Person. And those were so cute. They were amazing. We um, didn't do as many of them. We did a thousand Coke bottles. We did yeah. 2,000 of the other options. So if you're picturing this, it's a glass bottle of coke with a little note like around the neck of it mm-hmm. to say that we were in town yeah. um but we then, did it in june there's too much time too it much was, time if i were to coach young church planter phil mm-hmm. now i'd say hey hold the coke until later yeah because um closer to launch if you can strategize with your volunteers to just hit it in like the month to six weeks beforehand like mm-hmm. don't do anything before six weeks and i think we might have the coke might have been was it in june are you sure i'm pretty sure it was in june yeah okay yeah i i mean like they are effective but people have to know they can go somewhere yeah you tell me to come to something in october yeah that's crazy yeah so anyway and then we did popcorn which was a little bag of microwave popcorn and something else it was a little little postcard that said we're popping by to say hello yeah like we're your new neighbors (laughs) those were Weirdly effective. A lot of popcorn. Very effective. Yeah, a lot of popcorn visitors. Yeah. To Table Church. Mm -hmm. We should do it again. (laughs) But yeah, we went to 5,000 houses, like hoofed it, just walking through the neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. All through all the neighborhoods. We went to Ankeny. Or church planting. Mm -hmm. That's what that was. Yeah. (laughs) So we should do something like that again. That's true. Why wouldn't we? Why not? Why not? Because it's kind of miserable. What would we, what would we even give out now? I'd do popcorn again. Would why, we? Why? I mean, if it ain't broke, you know. It did really work. It worked great. Yeah. Um, the bonus now would be we're in actual church. <laughs> there is a bonus. You could come that this was, Sunday. It was very very hard to do that stuff ahead of time. Like if you are currently planting a church or thinking about it, one of the biggest things that's um. You have to get over the fact that you're talking about something that doesn't exist yet. Mm-hmm. So you can say what we are and you can say what we do, but you know that we aren't anything yet because mm-hmm. you haven't actually yeah. formed a community. You are forming one. Yep. When you're planning a church, <laughs> you're trying to create a core team or a launch team, whatever you want to call it. And uh, you got a lot of people who are basically like, call me when there's a service. Yeah. Know, call me when something ha- like I don't want to be When you're a- at church, let me know and I'll and then, see where I'm at in life. Once you have services, you got people that are like call me when you own a building. That happens too. Mhm. Which we Although do we not. don't get a ton of that. A little. Well, no. No one's like said that to me in Des Moines. I do know mm-hmm. that in 
our previous church plant in Sioux Falls, that was something that, that we was heard. All, I felt like that happened all the time. It did. But it did. And I, I'm, I'm simply projecting and wondering if there are people who just think that in their minds. Mm-hmm. Of course, if somebody's not going to come to a church simply because they don't have a church building, then they have a very misconstrued understanding mm-hmm. of what constitutes a church. Mm-hmm. There's some work to be done there. Which is an opportunity. It's not a bad it's thing. It's an opportunity. It's good conversation. We do own a building now. Yeah, we do it's own a building. It's not the one they probably have in mind. And nobody really asks us about this because we meet in a superb building. So mm-hmm. no one's like, well, this is a dump. That's true. Are you going to get a building? Yeah. <laughs> People are more like, why would you get a building? Like, why would we ever <laughs> move? Um, yeah. So anyway, the lead up to it, I just remember we, you want to be genuine you don't want to make up things that don't exist, but you are always kind of holding the fact that like you are, you have a mission, there's this goal, but you are building something that isn't here yet. So it always feels a little bit strange, but do it anyway. And then you find the people who resonate with what you're doing. And then I just remember that day, it was like such a relief to actually just, it felt good because we hadn't, if you're people who are used to getting to church early on Sunday mornings and like Sunday is like your like a driving force of your week like everything leads up to Sunday and then your next week starts with thinking about Sunday Mm -hmm. and how it went and things like that so for us it had been for my family we had been away from we moved in March and so from March until October it was just you're kind of like homeless church homeless yeah mm-hmm. so i just remember that first day with all the nerves and all of that it was also such a relief just to be like okay like we have settled we're home like this is going to be life now yeah you know yeah on sundays it's a good feeling so it was a good feeling even though we didn't know what would happen and all that stuff i just remember being so relieved we were finally like home like mm-hmm. here we are this yeah. is what we're doing yeah i love our community we have an amazing church and I'm thankful for Table Church every day. So if you're listening to this and you go to Table Church, thank you. Thanks for being on this journey <laughs> with us. Here's to many more years. But you know, we should just, in a future podcast series, do like, we should talk about church planting. Mm-hmm. I feel like we've done, we've done this long enough now in one place here. You know. We got something to say. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so we're, we're going to kick into a new book study. And uh, if you want to buy the book, you are welcome to do so. You don't have to. In order to enjoy this, we're going to try to unpack some stuff for you. Will you introduce the book for us, Megan? Yes. So we are going to be reading through Jim Wilder's book, Renovated, which came out in 2020. And um, you can find it on Scribd, both to listen to it or read it. Can you? An ebook. Mm-hmm. Cool. Did you not know that? No, I wouldn't have bought it if I didn't own that. <laughs> I was going to say. You use Scribd. So, um, how, how did I not look that up? Yes, the title, the full title is Renovated God, Dallas Willard, and the Church That Transforms. That is the title of it. But um, essentially, as we're looking at this series, the deal is Christianity tends to focus on believing the right things and making the right choices. Mm-hmm. That's often what people think about. If you're from outside the church, you think that's what Christians are preoccupied with, is what they think and believe and what they do, right? Mm-hmm. Doing the right thing. Um, and inside the church, you can feel that way too. Um, and you'll often feel that people really focus, like if you want to be a good Christian, 
say that in quotes, then um, the key to what you need to do is to believe the right things and to do the right stuff. So it's a very cerebral approach. Yes. Um, it's an and, intellectual and approach those things to are not formation. Because what you believe does matter and mm -hmm. what you do does matter. Um, but there's a lot of biblical evidence and brain science that reveals that your character is shaped much more by what you love, who you love, than what you know or believe. So mm -hmm. what you know and believe matters, but your character, like who you actually are, like your actual substance of your you, is formed much more by who you love and who you know loves you. Yeah. So there's a <laughs> psychologist called uh, named Jonathan Haidt, and he wrote a book, and he talks about how we are think the analogy he uses for humans is an elephant with a little rider on top like a guy riding an elephant, mm -hmm. the elephant is your intuitions, like the things that you actually want, your affect. Mm -hmm. The writer is your reason, mm -hmm. your intellect. We tend to think that the writer's in control, that your intellect, your reason, I choose to do the things that I want to do, but actually it's the elephant that's in control. The mm -hmm. elephant just lumbers wherever it wants to go. Mm -hmm. The elephant is your intuition and your affect, the things that you love, the things that you want to do, your kind of gut reaction to things and as it happens as much as we don't want to admit it our elephant is really what's driving us mm -hmm. so that's one way to put it yes so to the elephant and a rider just mm -hmm. because i've heard people misconfuse that not the writer the rider like the person rider, riding, riding the, the elephant. elephant we feel like there's a you know we are the guy on top of the elephant pulling mm -hmm. the little tiny reins we think that we're steering the elephant the yeah. elephant is steering us yes the, well the elephant is us part of us <laughs> our our affect our emotions um are steering our reason we reason our way mm -hmm. into the things we want to do not the other way around yeah like there's it's this invisible force that we're not entirely aware of underneath everything that's kind of like moving us one direction or another. And then we make these tiny choices that we think are the fullness of who we are, but it's really just, we're here making this choice because we brought ourselves here with all the underneath stuff mm -hmm. that we are not aware of. So you anyway. get, you get into an ethical debate with somebody and we all think that we're actually just arguing for what we think is right. But in fact, we're arguing for what we really just kind of want to be the case. Mm -hmm. And we're finding a, arguments that suit what we want. Yep. But yeah, anyway, all that to si simply say, we, our character is not shaped mm -hmm. primarily by what you know. Yes. Propositional truth. So um, we're going to be going through this book in four episodes. This episode, we're going to focus entirely on the very first chapter. Okay, so in today's episode, we're going to discuss Jim Wilder's background as a counselor and an expert on the intersection of theology and brain science. We'll discuss our own takeaways from chapter one. That's um, salvation is a new attachment. That's the chapter they're going to be talking about today. Uh, we're going to discuss our own personal experiences with attachment theory uh, and how what we've learned about that has shaped our own lives and our ministries and families. And then we're going to close with an opportunity for you, listener, to identify how attachment to God can help you in times of stress today. So adversity becomes an opportunity for growth. I'm sure you will all at some point today, unless it is midnight and you're about to fall asleep, you will encounter adversity at some point and it can be an opportunity. So we're going to talk about that. All right. Cool. So today's key question, we're going to talk about when you face adversity, do you frame it as an opportunity to grow in love 
or do you react in ways that leave you feeling regret, shame, or disappointment in yourself? Okay. So when, when something happens that is not your favorite in your day, mm-hmm. <laughs> how do you respond instinctively? So we're going to be talking about that. All right. Thoughts, Phil? Yeah, I'm thinking about the way that Dallas Willard framed framed the question when it comes to whether or not we uh, are growing spiritually. And this is something in the book that Jim Wilder says. Um, he would say, do you find it easy to love your enemies? Mm-hmm. Like that's like his measuring stick for if you're being transformed into Christ likeness. Like I don't care how much you read the Bible, how many spiritual disciplines you do, how much you go to church. Do you find it easy to love your enemies? Mm-hmm. That's that's the gauge of of kind of our spiritual maturity and growth in Christ that he would use. And, I'm, and when you put it that way, it's like, oh man, mm-hmm. I got I got some work to do. Yep. I got some work to do. So yeah, the question becomes, how do we change then? Mm-hmm. How do we change? Because obviously, you know, many of us have gone to church forever and uh, we don't know, you know, we, I mean, we could quote Bible verses and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. I think we all know what to do when we encounter an enemy you know, big enemy or a small one, you know, just in any way that someone has um, offended you in your day, whether they know it or not, um, if you understand why or not, if it's a big thing or a small thing, I think most Christians would say that they know like how they're supposed to respond. Um, You know, don't say the wrong things. Don't act too harshly. Try to deal with your anger, all of that. And what this book is getting at what Dallas Willard would talk about over and over again, Jim Wilder will talk about this, is you can be transformed into a person who instinctively doesn't have to choose much. Mm-hmm. You just act like Jesus does. Like, that's our bar mm-hmm. <laughs> to get to. Um, and you cannot think yourself there, and you can't choose yourself there. Mm-hmm. You get loved there. Yep. So that's what this is about. You get, you get socialized into the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Discipleship is the process of being socialized, yeah, loved into a particular uh, way of being. So, what what from the chapter stuck out at you, Megan? Mm, Got any quotes? Let's just start with that. Page one, there's a quote here that I think sets up kind of where this whole book is coming from, and then we'll talk a little bit more about that before we go on to the actual content. So, this is on the very first page, and um, Jim Wilder is just talking about where this all got started. So this is a quote from him. Um, He's talking about um, meeting with Dallas Willard and his wife. Dallas has cancer Mm -hmm. and he's um, not long for this world. So he's very sick at this point and Jim goes to visit him and this is what he said. Dallas sat across from me with tears in his eyes as he looked at the floor. Dallas had only weeks to live but His tears were not for his own life. What I have learned in this last year, he told me, is more important than what I learned in the rest of my life. But I have no time to write about it. I will try to finish the projects I've started. That's a cliffhanger there, isn't it? It's like, wait, (laughs) Dallas Willard just said that what I've learned in the last week is more important than anything Mm -hmm. I've learned in my life. Mm -hmm. And Dallas Willard, (laughs) for those of you who don't know, um, if you think about like the like 20th century and into this one, like the most influential voices in spiritual formation uh, would really be Dallas Willard, Eugene Peterson, and Richard Foster. Um, They had just an incredible influence Mm -hmm. on how the church talks about um, 
formation, like not just like what's true or what to believe, but how do we become a person mm-hmm. who just is those things. Um, so for like the last 40 years, mm-hmm. those are the voices that have really shaped that conversation in evangelicalism. Right. Yeah, yes. in, the, in the Protestant evangelical mm-hmm. world at least. And drawing a lot of American. ties, yes, in evangelicalism and then tying um, what what is happening in culture now to the church um, as a whole. So like mm-hmm. church history going back a couple thousand years, you know. So it's a big deal. Dallas yes. is, he, he knows his way around this conversation. He does. And Dallas Willard was not a pastor, although he did serve as one from time to time, but he was a philosopher. So mm-hmm. he worked at USC. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I think he was the chair of the philosophy department for quite yeah. some time. Yeah. So, um, but yes, so he's saying what I've learned is more important than what I've learned in the rest of my life, but I have no time to write about it. And he said, he looked up at me. I wondered if he was thinking about our conversation or something else. And he says this, he says, you need to write about this. His voice was steady, but with mounting passion. I know of no soteriology. That's the doctrine of salvation. Like how do people get saved based on, forming a new attachment with God. He offered no arguments in favor or against the idea. Dallas, for as well as he knew history, could think of no previous proponents, which Dallas Willard was brilliant. Mm -hmm. So if there was anything out there, he probably would have found it by now. His body slumped back into his chair, tired from the energy of speaking. So it's just his like dying thought. Mm -hmm. Is is anyone ever going to draw this connection between how our brains form attachments and how that connects with our relationship to God. Which to be fair, this is relatively new science. Mm -hmm. Um, So like, no, it hasn't been written a lot about a lot. Well, I think that intuitively a lot of ancient church fathers Mm -hmm. were onto something with this. Mm -hmm. And what's amazing about it is the, uh, the science of attachment and brain development and stuff like that. Um, maps really well onto what we yep. refer to as spiritual formation, the things that we kind of already knew, mm-hmm. you know, communal practices and habits of the heart and stuff like that. Absolutely. Uh, we've been doing those things without necessarily knowing the science to back it up. And now the science is not only backing it up, but also helping us do it better. Mm-hmm. And so I love, I love the idea of attachment with God as a model for salvation and discipleship. Mm-hmm. And it's not something that we probably we don't frame it that way as much as we ought to, mm-hmm. but it's it's just a really cool, once you start learning about what attachment is, I and mean, we'll talk about that, I'm sure, mm-hmm. um, it's just a really cool way of thinking about it that just makes, I don't know, for me, it just makes it so much more tangible, this idea of discipleship and growing my faith. Like, what mm-hmm. does it mean to grow in my faith exactly? And well, the whole science of attachment, that's like in the last 20 to 30 years that that has really become something that's taken more seriously, more studies are done, things like mm-hmm. that. Um, so just the science of like how people attach to their parents, you know, how children attach to their parents, how that can affect the rest of your life. That's all relatively new, like in the conversation. Yep. And so it does map on really well. Um, I know that for, for years and years I would have not fights, but just like intense conversations with people who had different thoughts about like what the priority of a particular ministry should be or, um, like what discipleship is. And I would just like hammer home again and again and again. Like this is just, you know, um, 
like what we did with restore people would want to call it and we'll talk about that maybe mention it later um there'll be a link in the show notes but people would constantly want to frame it as like a spiritual warfare ministry mm-hmm. and because that was a part of it like right. you know defeating the evil junk that gets mm-hmm. stuck in your life from one thing or another and I would consistently say, like, we cannot talk about it like that. It's not a spiritual warfare ministry. It's a discipleship ministry. You're, like, you're learning to attach to Jesus. Like, mm-hmm. if you don't have that, then nothing else can happen or will happen properly. Yeah. And the problems keep coming back. So your core need is to attach to Jesus. Yeah. And, and that's... Let's that's clarify, true. too, that attachment, as we're using it, that's a technical term here to describe the way that, like, a child... Um, enters into an implicit relationship of trust with a care a caregiver mm-hmm. and an attachment is necessary for for and it starts it starts pr- like in the womb attachment mm-hmm. begins in the womb with the mother like hearing even the mother's voice and stuff like that mm-hmm. um, having a nurturing environment even in the womb is where your brain starts to develop the capability of attaching and therefore being able to to function socially well mm-hmm. people who never attach to a caregiver have all sorts of problems with all, all levels of social functioning. Mm-hmm. And so um, attachment is simply the ability to live in a trust-based relationship with your with, with somebody, with a, mm-hmm. with a caregiver, a, a, preferably a parent, right? Mm-hmm. It preferably ha- it's your birth parents. Right. And it, if it can't be them, then it has to be some other mm-hmm. adult. Yeah. Yeah. And kids' brains are malleable. Like even if they didn't have it at first, they can attach later to somebody mm-hmm. who's not a biological parent. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just fascinating work that's being done um, in like neuroscience and Jim Wilder, who mm-hmm. Dallas is talking to in this conversation, uh, calls himself a neurotheologian. He's a psychologist. and mm-hmm. um, So Jim Wilder was a student who worked under Jane Willard, who's mm-hmm. Dallas Willard's wife. And so Jane is a licensed therapist and she's been in counseling for years. Um, gosh, at this point, I believe Jane is still alive. And I think at this point she's probably been a licensed therapist for like 50 or 60 years, something like that. Yeah. Just a super long time. And um, so Jane um, was uh, the supervisor over Jim Wilder while he was doing his doctoral work. And so she supervised him. He worked with her in the same office with her. And she had, um, she's a Christian counselor and she would work with people and just basically help them kind of unpack all of their old wounds and garbage, help them attach to Jesus, help them break spiritual, emotional strongholds, things like that. Um, And the thing that I've heard Dallas Wooler describe many times about Jane and then Jim Wilder brings it up in this book too is that Jane taught people to find God's presence like Mm -hmm. really what her work was was helping people like reach out in the dark and find Mm -hmm. God often traumatized people yes Mm -hmm. highly traumatized people people who needed really significant soul work to get done um like her core you know drive was to help people kind of reach out out of that darkness, out of those clouds, out of all of that stuff that they're experiencing and find God's presence right there with them. Mm-hmm. And that like when they can get to that point, all of the other healing can begin to happen and really make effect. Like you mm-hmm. can't, you can't really heal if you don't know that God is with you, you know, cause mm-hmm. that's your safe space. Right. So that's what Jane would kind of press over and over and over again, because while Dallas might be like up in the, you know, cerebral clouds yeah. <laughs> talking about yeah. philosophy. 
um, all of these things. And he had, he'd read all these books and all of that, but she would be down in the ground doing like actual hands-on ministry with Mm -hmm. people. And so because those two together married for so long, we're doing that work together of, um, you know, just really like finding like what, what does it mean to be, you know, to be made into the image of Christ and what does that practically have to do with our actual lives? What a so. what a power couple. Yeah, exactly. So Can I read this quote um of course about you attachment? Can. He says he says the only kind of love that helps the brain learn better character is attachment love. Mm-hmm. The brain functions that determine our character are most profoundly shaped by who we love. Changing character as far as the brain is concerned means attaching in new and better ways. Mm-hmm. If you want to change your characters, I'm not quoting anymore, I'm just talking. If you want to change your character, um, it means finding new and better ways to attach to Jesus. Mm -hmm. That's essentially what discipleship is. I just think that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Like there's, so there's parts of your brain that light up just by the image of a smiling face. Like our brains are wired with facial recognition software, if you Mm -hmm. will. And when you see someone smile at you and that, suggests to you that they value you that you that you matter that you're loved something in your brain comes on and is able to develop properly mm-hmm. and i mean that's this is why newborn babies can only see 12 inches that's mm-hmm. all they need to see they just need to see the smiling face of their parent you mm-hmm. know and that's what they need in order for their brain to develop correctly. And if you want to look at an inverse of that, this is why there are so many effective images in like horror movies where people smile but without the proper like intent behind it and that's Mm -hmm. why it creeps you out so much because one of your most basic human instincts is to see a smile and want to attach to Mm. it so when you see a creepy image where someone's smiling but it doesn't match with what's happening in the circumstances Mm -hmm. it's incredibly effective at creeping you out because it's exactly opposite from what your brain wants to do like your brain is seeing a smile but it's telling you to run i'm creeped out right now yeah i know i mean you can think about and i mean just take it for what it is but like you can see how powerful that is right if you see someone smiling when they shouldn't be smiling it's one of the most unsettling things in the world because from the time that you were a newborn baby your brain is wired Mm -hmm. to accept that as a moment to bond Mm mm-hmm Oof. That's yeah. that's Halloween right there for you. <laughs> he goes on to say salvation through a new loving attachment to God that changes our identities would be a very relational way to understand our salvation. We would be both saved and transformed through attachment love from to and with God. So, yes. I mean this is this is like the what the book's driving at essentially. So, mm-hmm. I don't know. I just think it's so cool. Um so it, so this is also cool. The we I just talked about like fa- your face, you know, smiling faces and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You know, almost every time the Bible talks about God's presence, it's actually the Hebrew word for face. Mm-hmm. Like it's a, we translate it presence because we don't think about being in someone's face. Yeah, you know? <laughs> like when they talk about like don't turn your face from me mm-hmm. and the God, the like the the face of the Lord is on you. Yeah. It, kind of so when the psalmist talks about being in the presence of God, um, he's he's literally saying the face of God, mm-hmm. and so like to grow in yourself in your to grow in your faith to be transformed. The f- 
first thing you have to do is understand that God is smiling at you. Mm-hmm. Like that is the most basic thing. Just like a newborn baby looking up at its mm-hmm. mom or dad. You have to know that God is smiling at you Like right whatever now. condition that you're in, God is looking at you. And the only thing he's communicating is that he wants you there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> God wants you. That he's like he looks at you, whatever your condition is in. You know, like his his face toward you is full acceptance. Like he wants to just embrace you. And if there are things that you feel ashamed of, those are things he wants to help you with Mm -hmm. so that that embrace can be uninterrupted. That's what his goal is. But if you think about attachment and what does that mean, we can say and truly mean that we love someone like you can love your spouse and you can love your kids you can love your parents um but also those relationships can tend to be fraught with a lot of difficulty or complication and things like that so when we're talking about attachment we're talking about getting to a point where your gut response is to do something that connects you to the right places and disconnects you from the things that are not good for you or for other people. Mm -hmm. But if you want to try out your attachments, you think about like, I love my husband, but if I am stressed out about something, is it my first response to connect with him or do I go look at my phone? Like Mm -hmm. what do I practice doing to find comfort? (laughs) You know, like you, we tend to um, in life when we hit a point of stress, if we're afraid of something, if we are overwhelmed, um, where do you go first? Like, where do you go to alleviate that pain? Do you go to God? Do you go to the people who you're closest to that you love the most? Or do you go to these lesser things to try to, like, grab at comfort and mm-hmm. see if it will stick? Where the comfort that will stick is in our deepest relationships but that often feels overwhelming to us because it involves so much work and effort and we want to do the quick thing like well looking at my phone help me forget yeah um whereas connecting with your spouse and talking about why the thing is bothering you or whatever is going to create an actual bond Mm -hmm. that's stronger and bring lasting comfort but what we tend to practice all day long is lesser attachments Mm -hmm. because we love them too we love the quick comfort Yep. So it's about um, becoming aware of that so that our impulse is to go to the lasting expensive comfort more often with God and with the people around us that we love instead of our phones or food or, you know, trite conversations and things like that. Right. So, so I hope that you're starting to understand, like when we talk about we're not transformed simply through cerebral knowledge. We're not denigrating it. We're just trying to put it in the proper place. Like having an understanding of the metaphysics of the incarnation doesn't do much for you if you are not attached to Jesus, Mm -hmm. right? If you haven't come into this place where you understand the love of God for you. Um, In fact, that knowledge uh, can, I don't know, it can be weaponized and stuff like that. And Mm -hmm. just for people who really want to get their fix off of, you know, brainy intellectual debates or something. Um, but when you are attached to Jesus and you start to realize, oh, fully God, fully man came to earth, you know, and being in very nature, God gave him, gave that up for my sake. Like that becomes a stronger source of attachment. Mm -hmm. Especially when you know that and it leads you into experiences where you're open 
to um, recognizing where God is in front of you. Like people who know a lot of things can have a moment 30 years into their journey with Jesus where some mystical thing happens that they can't fully control or explain and they walk away from it going, God just, God like actually loves me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> And it means more than like all the books you read or all the other things, like all of that matters. But if you don't have those moments in your relationship with God where you go, God talked to me mm-hmm. and told me he loves me. It's always something simple. It's always something that sounds silly to people on the outside. But those are the things that stick and make all the other stuff make sense. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. So ask yourself, how are you growing spiritually? Dallas Willard's measuring stick. Um, do you spontaneously love your enemies? Mm -hmm. You know, (laughs) ask yourself that and be honest. Um, and if you think you have room to grow, which everyone does, Mm -hmm. uh, then let's start by exercising our attachment with God. And I would also add this. I don't know if they talk about it. I don't remember this being the chapter. I, Jim Wilder's other book talks about it a lot. Also attachment to your community, like Mm -hmm. identity formation happens in community. Um, and that's how we're transformed in the God's grace in the context of community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, um, I couldn't recommend just reading this book enough. We're not going to cover everything in the chapters, but, um, if you've ever wondered how you could be a part of church for so long and have it be just this like, um, disorienting soup of, complicated weird relationships and stuff people do that doesn't make sense and people judging you or you being the one who's judging other people if you feel like most of your church experience has been something that just doesn't even make sense to you or you can't really put your finger on like what's going on um table all that and just consider have I ever had a moment where I just know for sure that God is right here with me and we talked (laughs) and if you haven't you can Mm -hmm. um and so, uh, yeah, it's just a good place to start. Any other quotes you want to share? Anything like that? Um, no. I mean, I just want you to read it. I want all yeah. of you to just read this book. I mean, I think I've said most of the stuff I wanted to mention. Yeah. Um, so we're going to talk about this first chapter this week. Like I said, we're going to have three more episodes where we kind of like pull apart some of the um, more practical implications for how this works itself out in your life. Um, what we're going to do next, though... Um, One of the big points of this chapter of the whole book is um, this really critical point that you learn both in this book, but also if you've ever researched attachment like we've been talking about between like kids and parents. If you've um, ever um, considered fostering or adopting kids, you've learned about this, that um, the reason, you know, people talk all the time about making safe spaces, like we want to make safe spaces everywhere. Um, The reason that we do that is there's this really critical thing that is just absolutely true. We change and grow into health when we're embraced by love. That it basically means you cannot change and grow in a healthy way if you don't feel safe. So you have to feel safe before you can shut down all of your other, you know, fear responses and things that you do to defend yourself. And when those things all get shut down, then you're in a space where you could learn something new, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but you can't learn or grow 
Yeah. You, you can't grow when you're triggered. No. So you can you can technically learn a lot of information when you're triggered. Mm-hmm. When you're defensive, when you're um, holding yourself in a shell, when you are doing things to protect yourself from getting hurt by other people, you can still like cerebrally, you can still learn a lot of information, but it can't do anything to really change you until you feel safe, put the defenses down and let the stuff in. Yeah. This is, and, and the fact is that culture, we went through a mass traumatic event in the pandemic. Like we all have some sort of trauma that we're like collectively carrying around right now. And so this is so crucial for churches to start to understand people cannot be trained. They can't grow when they're afraid, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, fear motivates people to act differently, but it doesn't change them right. into people who are truly new. Yeah. A kid sitting in a classroom who has experienced trauma, you know, they'll often, everything's a threat a lot of times and they can't learn if they're afraid, you know? Mm-hmm. And so our, our first goal is to make people understand that they're safe. Now, I, I do wrestle and I've heard other people talk about this. The, the, the language of safe spaces is tricky because we can't promise anything. Mm-hmm. You know, you can never promise safety anywhere. Um, but what we can do is say it's a secure space, mm-hmm. which means that if something does happen to you, that your voice will be valued and heard, mm-hmm. you know, and that, yeah. So like at table church, I'll say, I can't promise safety. I can't promise you that somebody's not going to say something idiotic to you. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't promise that somebody or even myself isn't going to hurt you. I somehow. can't promise you're not going to get hurt. Right. But I can promise that if it happens, I will listen to you and value what you say. Mm-hmm. You know, that's security. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you've ever wondered why you can learn a bunch of stuff about God, but it doesn't seem like it becomes easier for you to just be that person, it might be because you're more guarded than you realize you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and it might be for good reason. Like you might've gotten hurt many times by many right. different people for many different reasons. Or churches, yeah. So um, it's not that it's bad to be guarded because being guarded is is uh, an important thing you need to mm-hmm. get through the world. But if you want to change and grow, you have to find places where you can let the guard down and let things in. And so most elementally, what we're talking about with God is we bring all those, you go through the world, you're with all these people at work who are not safe, you yeah. know, for one mm-hmm. reason or another. You've grown up with teachers or your parents or your siblings or whatever who are not entirely safe people. So you learned all these really expert ways to be guarded. And then what we do is we accidentally bring that into a relationship with God mm. where most people do believe that God is loving Um and there are definitely, you'll have times where you think that God is horrible. Why would he allow these things? All of that. But we want to believe what the Bible says is true, that ultimately God is love and that he's good. But it doesn't feel that way. And we can't figure out how that good stuff can't get in. It's because we're bringing all those old, you know, battle yeah. strategies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, in the book, they even talk about like Jane is counseling women who have mm-hmm. undergone sexual abuse. How are they supposed to attach to Jesus a man? Yep. And, and they can't mm-hmm. uh, sometimes at first. And so they talk about how, in a sense, Jane stands in for Jesus yep. until they're able, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's just, yeah, it's just powerful, the yeah. the deep level that this trauma can, can it's affect It's why us. when people say, like, God just loves you and you can't receive it and it sounds trite, it's because there's so much other stuff in the way where you can't just, like, let it in like a puppy, mm-hmm. you know? And, and so it's about, like, figuring out how to 
recognize where the guards are, recognize safe places where you can let them down. And then, you know, going through that process. Jane would often talk about this in her practice. And then Dallas Willard would teach about this too, um, that people get fractured into all these different pieces, like that thing that happened to you when you were seven. And then that thing that happened when you were 33 and all these other things, they like break you off. Like a piece of you just gets broken off Mm -hmm. from the rest of you. And then you figure out how to like tape it back together, but it doesn't really heal. And so people need a lot of intentional help from therapists, from spiritual guides to be able to figure out how to like undo the duct tape and mm-hmm. figure out how to get everything pieced back together the right mm-hmm. way. So, yeah. yeah. There's an example of that in the book when there's uh, Jim Wilder's telling a story about when he was a camp, uh, camp counselor and there was a thunderstorm. Mm-hmm. And so he ran for cover in a building and in the building there was another counselor curled up in the fetal position on the floor, blacked out. Yeah. And it turns out that, that uh, like lightning had struck the tree right outside her childhood bedroom. And so now whenever lightning strikes hard, she blacks out and goes in the fetal position mm-hmm. and it's like some part of her was still stuck back there, you know? Mm-hmm. And in the, in the book, like he just kind of spontaneously cries out, Jesus help. And cool. And it's cool. And miraculously in that moment, her eyes open, she comes together and she's mm-hmm. able to face the fear. Jesus kind of came through in that moment, but yep. it doesn't always happen that way. <laughs> like sometimes mm-hmm. it's years of reintegrating ourselves. Yep. And so, um, I don't know. It, like, like I said, brain science is, so helpful these mm-hmm. days for yeah and you you don't have to feel safe all the time to be able to build in places in your life and relationships in your life that are safe to be able to do that work like it's not about figuring out how you can just feel safe always because mm-hmm. life doesn't always feel safe yeah i mean maturity is the ability to function in ambiguity right mm-hmm. like spaces that aren't necessarily exactly what you'd want them to be or don't fit into a box mm-hmm yeah. And when you when you start to understand that um, you have places in your life where you can let down the guard and figure some things out and you can, by the way, almost never do that all alone. Mm. <laughs> you usually need other people mm-hmm. to help you. Well, I'd say attachment theory says you, you do. Yeah, you you do, do need other people. Yeah. I mean, it depends on the severity of it. Right. But like for the most part, you just cannot be figuring these things out on your own. You need people. You need God. But um, if once you know that you have those spaces in your life where that can happen, the rest of your life, um, you can let bad things happen without putting all the pressure on those things. Like you mm. can just sort of let them be bad, but you can disassociate from them a bit. Like they don't have to mean everything to you. Like mm-hmm. they can just happen. But you know that you're going to keep working in these places that are safe. The rest of the stuff that isn't safe, you can kind of get through it without it feeling so personal, mm-hmm. which is helpful. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, what we're going to do toward the end here, um, if you've never heard about, um, no, they change a bit. I think there's all, I it's kind of like Pluto coming in and out of being I know. a planet. I didn't realize there was a fourth one now. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Now there's actually technically a fifth one that sometimes comes up. So, but we're going to talk about the four F's of fear and stress. Now I have seen the four F's for a couple of years now. I think there are officially definitely four, but occasionally you'll see a fifth one. What's okay. The, okay, just tell so, us the four and then tell the me four, what the fifth one is. The four F's of fear and stress. You've got fight, flight, fear, fawn. Those are the core four. Oh, I've heard freeze. Yeah. Well. Um, also flop oh. sometimes is one, or freeze is what they'll call it. Flop. So, um, 
Maybe so that's what fight, happened. Flight, fear, fawn. Sometimes you'll hear freezer flap. Okay. So <laughs> interesting. I've, I've, I mean, I've, I've seen them all, and yeah. even, oh man, like you just, used to always hear like fight or flight, you know, yeah, fight or flight, yeah. fight or flight. What's mm-hmm. your fight or flight system? It kicks into gear when your amygdala, your amygdala, the tiny. How big is the amygdala? I think it's like the size of a jelly bean or something. It's like very know. small. Is that the pituitary gland? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> your amygdala is this teeny, 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 tiny part of your brain and your hippocampus that like um, directs all your responses to like mm-hmm. what's happening to you. And um, it's this super small thing that when triggered, like the whole elephant will go running, you know. Just goes berserk? <laughs> yes. Oh, I'm reading this. Fear is freezing. That's, yeah. Okay, freezing, yeah. Fight, flight, fear, fawn, or flop. So you will hear these fight, flight, fear, fawn, or flop. Yeah. Um, so four, five, depends. So you'll sometimes fear will be, yeah. So anyway, fight, that's when when something happens that triggers you, when you whether you someone. understand it or not, you just like get intense. Yeah, you level up. <laughs> yeah. So, so there's some threat coming at you. And you just like stand your ground and fight against it. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's flight. So that means you can physically leave situations even when you don't understand why. You just like run out. Like one time yep. there was this other pastor in my office and he was um, just like not having his best day. And I'd asked him a question that I think on a better day he would have just answered. But instead he just got up and walked out of the room. Mm-hmm. That's freeze. That's fleeing the scene. <laughs> not freezing. Flight. Fleeing. That's yeah. flight. Um so flight can mean physically leaving situations or you can mentally check out, like just go away in mm-hmm. your mind, look at your phone. You know, there's there's other ways. Fear or freezing can be that you like physically stop moving <laughs> or you just like can't talk, you can't get the words out. Um, like having a weird dream where like you can't like respond appropriately to something and you're just mm-hmm. stuck. Um, mm-hmm. so different degrees and then fawn that is when the, you try to like win over the, the person who's threatening you. Yeah. So and now trauma is when our threshold for handling a situation is overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. That's when we are in a trauma experience and that's when these four F's click in, uh, kick in. And now for somebody who's struggling with trauma, um, these might kick in in scenarios that for others are perfectly normal scenarios. Mm-hmm. Like there's a dog on across the street, you yeah. know, they, and if they've been bitten by a dog, they might flip into one of these four categories mm-hmm. or just like somebody talking loud. Right. Yeah. Like it doesn't have to be anything that's even directed at you. It's just that your trauma response, your fear response kicks in, whether it makes any sense or not. Mm-hmm. So fight, flight, fear, I'm going to say freeze from here on out, even though gonna, the oh. document that we're looking at says fear. Fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. Mm-hmm. You either fight against it, you run away, you just get frozen and can't do anything, um, inability to act, or you just get like, you know, in a weird way, yeah. you kind of creepily try to get the abuser to like you. <laughs> so I'll share, I'll share from my own life an example of this. Um, and I've, I've talked to Megan about it before I've had, okay, I'm going to be just a little vulnerable. Is that okay? Yes. On the podcast. I mean, it's not going to, I'm not going to overshare. All right. This isn't going to be too weird. As a pastor, 
people leave your church sometimes. Sometimes it's people that you love very much. Sometimes it hurts. And so I think I've developed, um, when suppose I get an email or a text from someone that just says, Phil, can we meet? Yeah. I just, oh. and there's no, and you don't know why. <laughs> It triggers one of these, um, not fight. I don't want to punch the person. It's probably fear. Like, I'm like, you can't think of a positive or negative outcome. You're just like, I just want to get to the meeting and find out what it is. Exactly. Like, I just need to know what's going on. I I, I assume, I assume something's wrong and it's, it's not rational. Like somebody wanting to meet with their pastor is that that's normal. You know, Mm -hmm. it should be a normal situation. Um, but like, it, I'm just in a situation and I think I'm better now, but it's true. Like after this happens so many times in, in, in your life where like that is a bad thing, you mm-hmm. know, somebody, somebody's going to, I don't know, they're mad or they're upset or I did something people, wrong. Something because like. often what happens is people are upset. They lack the tools and people know that they lack the tools to handle it properly. So they don't really know. Um, how to handle a situation where they're upset so they don't necessarily do their best mm-hmm. at communicating because they also struggle to know how to communicate, you know? Yeah. So somebody who's maybe upset about something and then they don't know how to communicate about it. So whatever they do to communicate about it might like create more damage. Yeah. But, but I'll be but honest, sometimes 19 times that. out of 20, it's no. not that. It's, yeah. it's just, hey, <laughs> you know, I just want to talk about this really, you know, it, maybe it's an encouraging thing. You know, like mm-hmm. it, 19 times out of 20, it's not that. It's like just, without a doubt, nearly every time that either one of us has, has had that trigger, it's not been anything bad and it's only been yeah. something good. But because like two times out of 100, yeah. it's bad. <laughs> and so the thing is like when people are actually upset about something, they can't tell you that ahead of time usually because they just don't have the words. Like they don't mm-hmm. know what to do. And then people who are not upset and just want to talk about something good or whatever it's not their concern isn't to like make sure that we know that they're not upset yeah (laughs) yeah it's true so nobody ever means to cause these responses this is what i'm getting at we just have them exactly it's not anybody they may be they not doing they're not doing anything wrong it's just a text that says can we meet like that's totally (laughs) innocent right you have time to get together i had a couple things i wanted to talk about yes that i get that kind of text all the time Mm-hmm. I just got one like this week and I'm like, of course. And I'm also like, <laughs> can we meet as soon as possible? So I know why. I hope, I hope no one <laughs> hears us the wrong way. We're just being vulnerable here. <laughs> just being vulnerable. Yes. And that's a very mundane, I don't know. I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't, I shouldn't denigrate people's, uh, no, I mean, know, but the point but being that people, people are just, some have it much worse than I do. That's yeah. what I wanted to say. <laughs> And people never, if somebody, if somebody says that you did something that triggered them in some way, there's a very good chance. You you look at yourself, maybe you were a jerk, but there's a very good chance you truly couldn't have done it any different or better. It's just you being you Mm -hmm. and they got their own stuff. Yeah. So. Happens a lot. But I think part of being a compassionate person is being open to hearing those responses. Mm -hmm. Like this, this had this effect on me. Okay. And thank you for telling me. Mm-hmm. Um, I will try to do that different next time. You mm-hmm. know, maybe like think back and say, has anyone ever told me the same thing that <laughs> yeah. I made them feel that way? <laughs> Why do I keep hearing this from people? Yeah. What is people's problem? Everybody has the same problem. <laughs> Except for they me. take this the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> that might be a sign. <laughs> yeah. So you've got an infographic here, yes. Megan. 
I do. So the this whole key point here that you can't grow if you're not safe. If you don't feel safe, you can't put the defenses down and grow. And so the world is not safe, so the defenses are useful. But then there are times that you realize they're not helping you, they're hurting you because they're keeping you from growth. Mm. So um, you can't grow if you're trapped in a fear response because if you're in a fear response, you can't release all those guards and let something new in. Okay. That was a great recap. Yeah. I'm trying to get back on point. Um, And it's true. That's just true. Um, So uh, loving attachment with God creates the conditions necessary for growth. If you don't ever have an experience where you feel God with you and feel that he loves you, nothing that you learn about God can change you into a person who acts like God does without having to think about it. Nothing can get in. Okay, so you have to exit that fear response. So we've got this infographic. Everybody listening, You've probably got your phone within reach. So grab your phone. You can uh, look in the um, episode notes for this episode. Click on that. Open it. I'm going to talk slowly while you're opening your episode notes because this will be really helpful for you. And in the episode notes, we've got a link. um, And it says fight or flight responses infographic. Okay. So you click on that and you can look at this with us. I think this is fun and useful. Um, so as you're pulling it up, you can kind of zoom in on these four key ways that we can respond when we get triggered by something, when our fear response comes in line. Okay. So um, everybody has a sympathetic nervous system and a parasympathetic nervous system. So you might've heard of that before. I just took my son to the chiropractor and they had a poster talking about the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems. <laughs> so your sympathetic nervous system is, is the part of your nervous system that's activated by stress. So it gets you ready to respond to a threat in some way. And your parasympathetic nervous system is the part of you that, that focuses on resting, and digesting. It's what lowers your heart rate, your blood pressure. Um, It slows down your breathing and it's a direct counter to your stress response. They're both completely useful. You need both of them. If you put your hand on a hot stove, you need your fear response to tell you to run away, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? You need that. And then you need your parasympathetic nervous system to help calm you back down and get you into a state where you can relax because you cannot grow if you're not relaxed and feeling safe. Okay. So the more that you understand about your own personal fight or flight responses, the better that you can start to recognize how they actually work in your life. So um, again, neither of these things are bad. It's just that we often will end up living in our sympathetic nervous system responses a lot more often than we need to or that benefits us. So understanding where you go when you're stressed out helps you um, intentionally choose to help yourself calm down. basically. So, um, have you seen this infographic before, Phil? I have not. Before I put it on here. Okay. So they've got these four, the four main things, fight, flight, fear, or, you know, freeze, and then fawn. So, um, it's just kind of like gives you almost a little, it reminds me a little bit of what they talk about with the Enneagram, like, um, 
describing like how you respond mm -hmm. in in hard situations and things mm -hmm. like that. So if you are not entirely sure which one of these that you exist in when you get stressed out, there are some um, like descriptors here. Um, so if your primary response when you are stressed out or afraid is to freeze, then at worst that looks like, um, you know, contracting, hiding, camouflaging, isolation, being a hermit, being mm -hmm. a bit spacey or flighty, like numbing out basically and just kind of, um, you know, people are like, are you listening to me? Yep. <laughs> You're like, no. Um, so you're just very disconnected. It's inaction. Okay. You're withdrawn. Um, if your response is flight, um, you get panicky, worrying a lot, micromanaging, um, you know, you might be a person who likes to get like, you, you're attracted to things that make you feel like that adrenaline rush. Mm -hmm. That could be you. Um, you know, flight can also be like uh, a lot of like obsessive thinking, just trying to like get yourself out of things, stuff like that. Um, so if your response is to fight, um, you might be a bit of a bully. You might get explosive or controlling. You might feel entitled, like kind of like what I was mentioning before, like somebody gives you some feedback and you're like, why does everybody always think that this is what I mean when I say this, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like you're always trying to like put it on somebody else. Um, you know, that kind of thing. Fawn that's, um, you get kind of like, if somebody isn't happy with you, you try even harder to get them to like you. You know, like a kitten that just won't give up. <laughs> mm -hmm. So you can, you know, but a lot of ways that we'll describe that as like people who are like people pleasers or a doormat. Like if you're one of those doormat personalities that lets people just walk all over you, that might be That's your where thing. you go in stress. Yes. Yep. Mm -hmm. But this is not all bad. So this is why I like this infographic because it not only describes your primary response when you're stressed, but it also describes the ways that these responses can form you in good ways too, to handle things in an appropriate way. And that's why I'm sharing this infographic. So mm -hmm. like for freeze, if you're a person who freezes um, and checks out, um, okay, so at your best, you may have actually, you know, like this, this thing that's maybe like sometimes the worst thing about you <laughs> can also form some of the best qualities that you've got to handle stress in healthy ways. So it can make you really good at being acutely aware of things, being mindful, being present. Okay. So like the same thing that allows you to like check out when you fine tune that something is not safe can also like give you some abilities to be like acutely aware of what's mm -hmm. happening. Right. You pick up on things maybe. Yeah. yeah. You're, you're better at that than other people might be. And if flight is more of your natural response... When you're stressed out, it can also mean that you're a bit better at disengaging when like, you know, the you situation is a bit too hot yeah. and you just don't need to be a part of it. You can have a better sense of judgment to mm -hmm. go. I don't have to be a part of every. You can cut that off. Yeah. You can, you, know. you can Sabbath well. Yes. Stuff like that. You can separate, you can disassociate yourself from what's happening around you and not make it all about you. Mm. Um, so you can be more industrious perseverant things like that so just people who are able to like take those skills and turn them into superpowers are people who can say i don't have to be a part of every fight like mm -hmm. i don't have to be a part of everything that's happening at work like if there's a bit of drama i can decide if i want to stay 
or mm-hmm. if I want to go. And a lot of people really struggle to leave drama. They just want to be right. a part of it. <laughs> yeah. Or they feel a responsibility to it. Yeah. Or, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So or if. They, yeah. Just can't turn it off. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. So these are, these are people who know how to leave and it's just about refining when to leave and when to stay. Yeah. That's the fight. So, response. no, that's. That's the flight response. Flight. Okay, yeah. sorry. So for fight, if you're more of a fighter, at your best you can be assertive. You can have really good boundaries, be courageous. You can be determined. Um, it makes good leaders because you have to be able to decide when to stand for things and mm-hmm. when not to. Um, you can get very articulate because you're used to staying in it. Yeah. So, um, And then for fawn, at your best you're loving you're servant-hearted. You um, understand how to compromise and how to really listen to people, how to be fair and how to like be a peacemaker, mm-hmm. not just a peacekeeper, but a peacemaker. So um, so they're not all bad. I wanted this infographic because it describes that these skills that you learn from the time that you were like a baby right. <laughs> to handle stress, it's not all bad and it can help you. Mm-hmm. And often like making friends with your fear responses can often be the key to understanding some of the best qualities about you. Mm-hmm. And I think it's safe to say that one of the keys to being a person who reacts the, the, the best in your fear response rather than the worst is attachment. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's being, it's finding that attachment and growing healthy in, in trust-based relationships that gives us the ability to, if we're naturally fighters, instead of bullying, controlling, and exploding at people, uh, we set boundaries and we have courage mm-hmm. and leadership in a situation. Yep. So somebody who hasn't been able to have those neural pathways formed uh, ha- has a very hard time or maybe is unable to react healthily mm-hmm. in their fear response. Because you're always going to get scared. Like you, yep. Things are always going to be stressful or fear or, you know, fearful for you. You can't get away from that. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of how much does it control you? How much of the ability do you have to respond in a healthy way? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. And so I never want like the conversation to stop at, where do you go in fear? And be mm-hmm. like, well, avoid that. You know, right. but it's really, it's, it's whatever, you're probably going to be a lot better at the bad stuff than the good stuff, mm-hmm. like in a hard situation. Um, like you might have a lot more examples of, oh, I know how I act, you know. But if you look deeper, you can see that those same qualities do serve you. But when you're safe, yeah, when you feel safe, you can apply those same reactions in a way that serves you and the people around you better. So, and the key is safety. And for a Christian, the key is being safe in God, with God. And that applies then immediately to how you interact with other people. So there you go. Phil, do you feel like you know which one you are? Um, I think fear. Fear? Freeze, sorry. Freeze? Freeze. Yeah. I, yeah. That's, that seems to go with an Enneagram 9. But I think fight is is probably when, and this also goes with the Enneagram 9. I don't know if there's if I should be drawing these correlations or not, but <laughs> um, there is a threshold at which fight becomes my mm-hmm. my. Uh, my fear response, I think. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the goal for me then is, as a disciple of Jesus is to make sure that it's in the healthy ways, the healthy sides of these coins mm-hmm. in the freeze. So acute awareness, mindfulness, presence, you know, th- those can be the things that I think I do often mm-hmm. express. Um, 
That's interesting because there's kind of the two, the two um, on one side, freezing and fawning are both like building safety in a situation that's hard and fight and flight are more on the side of like um, making a refuge for yourself, Mm -hmm. like, you know, with more active things and one's more passive. Mm -hmm. And the way that you're describing the two things being one of them's a passive thing and one of them is an active thing. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that describes your personality pretty Mm -hmm. well. Like you're a mix. I'm a a mutt. You are a diverse personality person. What do you think about yourself? How would you answer? I mean, I'm definitely fight and flight more Mm -hmm. than anything because you don't have to pick just one. I would say like in situations where I'm, I'm two things as well, but mine are both like more active Mm -hmm. than passive. So I am really like if I'm in a situation where there's a threat and it's something that is extremely important to me, I fight. Mm -hmm. If I'm in a situation that is a threat, but I know like it's something I could let go of, I will easily disengage. Okay. So like I will easily just walk away. (laughs) I'll either fight like crazy or just walk away. And I, my journey is more to learn how to do both Mm -hmm. without just like these hard, you know, things. But I would say, like without a doubt, probably predominantly people who work with me would say I'm fight, but I'm also definitely like very good at just walking away from stuff that I perceive to be too much work mm-hmm. <laughs> and not right. connected to the most important things that I do. Sure. I'll be like, I don't have to do that at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't have to get on that train. No, Yeah. no. But I mean, like for things that matter to me, fight for sure. So I think it's safe yeah. to say neither of us are fawn. No, <laughs> I don't we're, think we're both like, if, if anything, we're both like, so not that, that that's probably a place that we could grow toward. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I feel like there's been a lot of content in this episode. It's good to be back. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if we should, yeah save the rest for next time (laughs) oh yeah i mean well this is all we were gonna say right well perfect yeah we were at the end but anyway look at that look at that infographic it's really really helpful the most important thing that i would like to make sure that you all take away from that is identifying your fear response is also um identifying when you are safe some of the best and most critical things about you to help the world be a better place and to help other Mm -hmm. people feel safe so um it's not all bad no it's just about being aware. Awesome. Right. Well, I hope that something was helpful for you. Grab the book, Renovated, by Jim Wilder, if you want to read along. And uh, we'll dive in next week to chapters three and four, right? Yes, we will. Okay. Thanks for listening, everybody.